and welcome to another exciting episode of Adventuring Academy. I am your humble Dungeon Master, Brendan Lee Mulligan. This is Dropouts Vodcast, where we talk about all things related to running the game at your table. Rules, tips, tricks, all the tools you need to be able to go in and have awesome tabletop role-playing experiences with your friends. Our guest today, oh my goodness, long-awaited, someone who is such an exciting, awesome designer and creator within the tabletop space. I guarantee you, you have seen this guy's name if you are tapped into the tabletop scene in any capacity on Twitter. Uh, uh, his work is all over the place right now. He is a voice actor, streamer, and cosplayer who created the class modifier module and an, an alternative character creation tool for D&D 5e focused on class narrative. He is a, a developer on Into the Motherlands with a bunch of awesome D20 fam like B. Dave Walters, Tanya Depe past Christina Ariel, uh, founder of the game designer group Mythic Grove, currently working on a goblin dating sim called Hidden Treasures. And I believe this is actually so recent that I don't even know if it's on my list, but I believe, Gabe, also you just worked on uh, uh, Ukatoa for Darrington Press. Uh, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome Gabe Hicks! <sighs> I, I have been busy this year. <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally like looked at my resume for this year and I've done more projects this year than there are months in the year. And I'm like, I need to stop. It's well, listen, there are lots and lots of fans out there who would say the exact opposite. Um, so I have to, uh, uh, like all awesome creators out there in this space right now, I definitely hear that hustle of, oh my God, look at all this stuff I've done. Yeah. Um, uh, but the stuff that you have done is so so truly awesome and so deeply, deeply cool that it is no wonder that you are being asked to jump into all these projects. Uh, Gabe, so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for yeah. making time to come by. Thank you for giving me the time. I love, so I've been, Pirates of the Viathan has been the thing that I have consumed the most in the last like couple months. I swear, because like D&D &D and Pirates are two of my favorite things to combine. My favorite book is literally Ghosts of Saltmarsh. So I was like, this is everything that I wanted. <laughs> Oh, hell yeah. Well, I'm super psyched to hear that. Um, uh, Gabe, talk to me a little bit about um, your your origins as a player of tabletop, what led you into the game as a hobby. And obviously the hobby has a lot of different areas. Like I grew up, you know, with my mom was a comic book writer going to comic book conventions. There's so many places to end up within the gaming sphere. What mm -hmm. led you to tabletop originally? And then what got you hooked in your first experiences as a designer? What, what drew you towards the actual smithing and forging and creation of these games so this is this is actually literally one of my favorite things to talk about because i get to talk about one of the best people i've ever met in my life um i i loved i loved board games i loved narrative and i love video games and the only thing that i couldn't get out of video games that i could get in tabletop games is the infinitely open storytelling which makes sense. Like they can only program so much. And there's like the choosing your own adventure aspect of that. But still there's there's nothing like someone saying, okay, you know what? You do go inside of the giant thing and you stab its stomach. Like it's 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 not something that's like a common process that happens. And um when I was in college, I had one professor who was he was such a genuine open person. He had been doing tabletop games for years and years. He had worked for Hasbro. Uh his name was his name is Luke Peter Schmidt. And I ended up actually doing an internship with him. 
And I was like, he, cause he had a, he had a company where all they did was they kickstarted games and ran it. And it was awesome. I'm like, this is so interesting. I could ask him anything and he never asked for anything. Like he would, he would expect me to do the work that I agreed to, but he took me to PAX Unplugged. He took me to Gen Con. He took me to PAX. He's taken me to multiple conventions. I never had to pay for anything. We would either get in the car and drive there together. And he's, he never asked for anything. And after the internship ended in the semester, he kept doing this for me. Oh my God. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, uh, that that's that's beautiful to hear. And and uh, props to Professor Peter Schmidt. Um, uh, that's so, I I'm literally looking up above my desk right now at a uh, a small uh, photograph portrait of a college professor that completely shaped the trajectory of my life. Yeah. I feel like that's a, a that's such a beautiful story that resonates yeah. so much with me. Those people that can come into your life in that position of being a mentor, of being a guide, of being a teacher to, and both like you're saying, not only of, of passing on their information or knowledge, but literally guiding you into the space that you're gonna be flourishing in. That's mm -hmm. so awesome. Um, uh, was that the kind of thing where, where you knew that you had an interest in games and pursued this professor? Or was this one of those things where you were like, Oh, very, very cool. That's awesome. Yep. So yeah, I, I was like, I want to talk game stuff. I have no idea who to ask. And literally, there was there has never been anyone that I was like, I was so able to ask a question and then know that I would not get the answer that I wanted to hear, but an answer that I needed to hear. And there was never any malintent. It was always like, here is what you need to know. If I can help, I can do these things. If you don't need it, that's great. But if you want the help, I'm here. Like the the man guided me through my first Kickstarter that I ever ran, and wow. it succeeded. It was very small, and he was a backer of it. Like he he had been playing the game, he had gotten everything. I have seen his name on so many things that I've done. I literally see him like, um, cheering me on in random moments, or like like he's mentioned my name to people, and so like I'm like, did it's. It's the person that I never felt like I had to repay, but I always want to. Oh my God, that that is incredibly touching and profound. I that is such a beautiful story. Uh, uh, I'm just yeah thinking about uh, a professor. My professor Peter Schmidt was Professor yep. Davis, and um, it's the the impact that that position that position can have where you are making space when you find people that are in positions as they like are entering the industry that's yeah. so incredibly important and significant um well that's beautiful to hear uh uh as you so so this these early years you're in college you're going to these mm -hmm. conventions you're going to stuff like that when did you move because i feel like there is a moment when you are approaching a area of art or creativity or content or media or whatever you want to call it where you go from being a consumer of that and then some little switch goes on in your brain and you go like, no, my love for this actually runs so deeply that I, I need to be involved in the creation of this thing. Mm -hmm. Do you remember moments like that where you, as obviously because we play games from the time that we're little kids, but do you yes. remember the moment where you were like, actually, I love this so much that I need to dive deeper. I need to go further into this. And what were your early experiences like as you first started getting a handle on what it meant to be a game designer? I... I was playing I was playing D&D 3.5 and there was so much that I loved about it and I'm like okay but 
there's no rule for this. Mm -hmm. Can I, I can make one up, I guess, technically. (laughs) (laughs) And then I just like, I just started to do it. I would just have like a book full of notes and it wasn't even that like I had shared them with anyone. It was like, oh, well, actually, I could do this. Well, actually, you know what? If I if I make this thing react this way, I can make this other thing that also reacts to that. And then I like looked at my book and I had like 20 pages of notes on like weapon variations for like from like a, a dagger to like a butcher's knife versus a combat knife. And it wasn't even different damage. It was like different status effects. Like this one is better at slashing and this one like does bleeding. And then I'm like, maybe people care about this. Probably not. But then it's... <laughs> It's it's like that nonsense posting. It's like somewhere in the internet, just like, eh, I'm just going to put this here and then no one's ever going to see it. And then someone sees it and you're like, what? <laughs> As someone like picks up those rules that you created and it's a very wild thing to, so much of being a dungeon master is that feeling of crafting toys for people, right? It's that feeling... Of, and that's true whether you're designing something narratively, like an mm-hmm. NPC or a plot twist, yep. or you're designing something mechanically. Like one of my favorite things to do, I, I'm very much of an opinion within the space of tabletop games that um, occasionally you will see people talk about a kind of dichotomy between like being mechanics focused and being yes. narrative focused. And for yep. me, I'm always like, let's turn up the dial on both to a left. Yeah. I love mechanics, I love narrative, and there's no, like, for me, it's just as much fun to design a big plot twist as it is to design a magical item that's homebrew yes. that does exactly what you want it to do, and the rules mm. feel so fun and engaging. Um, uh, you're talking about weapon variations, I'm like, yes, I love that. One of the things I miss, because I know you're talking about coming into the game around like 3.5, which was, that was my big addition as well. Yep. Uh, uh, which is so crunchy. People that have only played 5e, it's like, ooh, man. It's very different. (laughs) (laughs) Very different. But I even remember being, uh, uh, when I was around 10, I I caught, you know, six months of the tail end of second edition, which has one rule about weapons that I do kind of miss, which is weapon speed, which was was a... And it's like, that's so cool. And obviously I understand that 5e is all about pruning clutter and crunch and trying to make it a little bit more streamlined. But that being said, the idea that the weapon you're wielding would absolutely affect your initiative, which is what weapon speed was all about, of like, yeah, you're gonna go earlier if you have a knife than if you have a two-handed maul or whatever. It makes perfect sense. It's heavy. It's heavy. Um, So I personally miss weapon speed. uh, but that's so that's super awesome. So uh, uh, you're talking about you know going to you're you're in college. You're going to these conventions. You're getting involved in the world. You've been playing already and running games for a while, um, and you uh, start to run Kickstarters, which is uh, the, you know my the beginning of my career as well. I was in comics at the time. This is before I was working at College Humor or doing anything like actual play. I was just a D and D hobbyist. But Kickstarter was such an incredible tool. Myself and my uh, uh, collaborator Molly Ostertag did our graphic novel through Kickstarter. Um, uh, do you remember what that transition was like as a uh, um, like, do you think coming up in our generation of creators mm. with things like Kickstarter um, helped bridge that divide between working in indie spaces? And now, obviously, you are like, we're like into the motherlands. It's like an official Twitch stream. Yep. You're working with Darrington Press. Like, 
what was what was bridging that divide like going from indie creator Kickstarter to like getting involved into the mainstream industry? It it was it was strange because it felt foreign. Like it didn't it didn't feel like there's it's it's like the idea of like being an adult. You never feel like you're an adult, even while you're an adult. And you're like, you know what? I I have like two kids and a house. I don't have kids, but that's beside the point. You have like two kids, a house, a car payment, everything. But it's like, but I still don't feel like an adult. And it was it was that moment of being a creator. It's like I'm working with all these people. Am I? I'm I am a like I am. It was other people had to tell me that I was like a professional in this. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that though. I definitely have, I feel that vibe tremendously. Also because not only of the thing of like, again, like witnessing yourself, but also having that thing of only realizing how far you've come in yep. weird moments of like, even that, that like the whole idea of like, am I an adult of like, oh, I still like, I don't, it's like, I don't have kids. I don't have a family yet. I don't. And then someone will, I'll have someone ask me and be like, how do I do my taxes? And I was like, oh, here's what you do. And people are like, Oh, you're like, oh, I know that offhand. Oh God, I'm a like, yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah, like um... I, I had a moment. Uh, packs unplugged. I this the this past packs unplugged. I went, and then the weirdest thing for me was that people knew who I was, mm -hmm. and I didn't understand that. They're like, yeah, I saw you do this thing. I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. I and it, it had happened multiple times, and then I'm like this is someone whose work that I've been like super into. And they were like, oh, it's so nice to finally meet you. And I'm like, I didn't know you knew I existed. <laughs> it's a very weird feeling. The first time that you are like at, cause these conventions, obviously it's been, you know, we're mid pandemic. So the yep. conventions have not been happening for a minute, but I remember going to a convention for the first time. And for the first time in my life, this was like C2E2, right when like Fantasy High was, the first mm -hmm. season of Fantasy I was like finishing up. And I remember being there as just somebody to like, to, to greet people and the bizarreness of like someone coming up and me being like, hi, my name is Brennan. And them kind of getting offended and being like, I know, and being <laughs> like, I know who you are. And me being mm -hmm. like, I didn't mean to hurt you. I've just always, yeah. I've just always introduced myself my whole yes. life. <laughs> I, it's that moment when it's like, it's almost rude to introduce yourself because people like you're you're so known that people assume they like they already know. I'm like, no, I just I just I just thought you thought I was just some guy with like a dog on my shirt. I don't know you knew what it was. <laughs> Truly, I feel like I will never. The, the, I was like, it, it will it will always be the move for me to just say like, hi, I'm Brett. I don't care if you're you could be wearing Dimension Twenty merch. I'm still gonna say hi, I'm Brennan because I never want to be the guy who's like. Well, clearly you're aware of who I am in this. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to talk for a second too about like, uh, um, so I love that, that I really resonate with that moment you're talking about in your head, because I think there's a connection between what you were saying right when we first started talking and this idea too of um, the impulse to design. Mm -hmm. And I think there is something about tabletop that really invites people to embrace their inner designer. Uh, because like you're saying, the game invites you to have limitless imagination, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, even with you know D and D as our sort of like prime example of it's one of the only games where one of the players is deputized to be a referee. When yes. you're playing a video game, 
nobody needs to adjudicate the rules of the game. The game is programmed to not allow you to do things that you're not allowed to do. Yep. But with D&D, &D, there is built into its structure the idea of negotiating what the likelihood of something is, of reasoning out together how one would do something not covered in the examples of a given rule. Um, for people that are just starting this out, we get a lot of questions about homebrew, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, as homebrew is kind of like the initial hatching of a budding designer, like yeah. you start designing for your own games, um, we get a lot of questions about homebrew and how to approach that because people want to get creative but also don't want to break their games. Yes. When you look back at your own history as a designer, what are your good go-tos for how people can start thinking about design as an element of them creating games together? When you're creating those things, not all of your ideas have to work well together. Instead, write them all out. You might be like, you know what? I want to make a magic wand that does this thing. And maybe it does this, and maybe it does this, and maybe it does this. Because after you have, after you have all of the paint that you want to put on a canvas, after you start painting, you might decide, you know what? I don't need green. I don't need red. I just need the black, yellow, and blue. Mm -hmm. And if you have all of those pieces, you can even take that paint you didn't use to another painting. But if, if you have all of these ideas pouring out, put them somewhere. You can pull them later if you want to. If you overwhelm yourself, you might not like what it looks like at the end, and then it's discouraging. I love that. And I think too, I love the metaphor of the different colors of paint there, because I think that people have a, maybe a hang up in their head when they're worried about homebrewing, because when you start getting to the, into the crunch or mechanics of a game, even something like 5e that for people that have been yeah. playing D&D for a long time, we know that it's more streamlined, but it can still seem daunting, right? Yeah. I love you talking about it in expressive artistic terminology because the truth is when I'm going in and making those decisions about like, does it do, does the magic item do plus one D six? Does it do a plus two? Is it a flat bonus? Is it this? Is it that? In my head, the process doesn't feel static or abstract. It does yeah. feel like painting. You are trying to conjure a feeling right? Yep. Um, you're sitting there with a magic item and you're going like, cool, what should the feeling of this magic item uh, bring across? Um, and uh, uh, in terms of like exploring different types of design in that way, um, when you are, what in your games would you say is most often the thing that prompts you to enter into a period of design? Is it like addressing a problem most of the time? Or is it creating a tool? Is it crafting something that's meant to be fun and played with? Or do you find that you like sort of exist across the spectrum as a designer? Right now, uh, actually more often, it's leaving something open and not letting people necessarily know that it's open. Uh, something that I love doing when I run games, uh, recently I did a murder mystery uh, campaign. Awesome. And something that the players didn't know was I didn't know who the killer was. <gasps> I decided who the killer was based on the way they interacted and reacted to the NPCs because that's what was what made it engaging. The things that they latched onto, the things that they were really interested, I'm like, you know what? Well, now I know how to weave that in. So more often than not, I actually leave it open so that way, like, 
I can I can come up with general outlines to run with. And if like, but you know what? We actually did see that person and they said that weird thing and they have this power. And I'm like, you know what? It wouldn't make sense. I'm not going to tell them that they're right because I'm just now deciding that they're right. But let's go into it. I love, I'm obsessed with that. The Again, the idea of um, interacting with worlds based on crafting an experience, right? Of, of not looking at these worlds as being hardcore, set in stone, whatever. You know, it feels like a little bit of a sneaky DM trick to do, yep. but having your worlds be a little bit volcanic, having the ability to change something, um, either broadly in your cosmology or just specifically in a moment to like reimagine an NPC. Like I, I definitely do believe in that thing of, I might have inclinations or, or ideas in my head, but until they are canon in play, yep. they are totally volcanic yeah. and able to be changed by the players at the table. Giving, giving the players some agency to the narrative both makes my job easier and it gives them the self-satisfaction of being right. Yes, absolutely. Um, I love that. Uh, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about too, uh, uh, if we could, and actually I think we're gonna go, just because we're sort of on this topic already, uh, uh, I wanted to jump in to uh, one of our questions a little bit ahead yeah. of schedule. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, which is a uh, sort of in this in this vein of like um, talking about game design, talking about the different things that game design is there to do. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about your work in the idea of of CMM, right? In the mm -hmm. idea of the class modifier module. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, it's so it's such great design. Um, and we do have some specific questions from fans about it, but I also just want to turn it over to you to just explain cool. to our viewers what the class uh, module, what the class modifier module is really all about. So, okay, I said it's amazing. And to be clear, like the way that it worked out was what amazed me. The, the class modifier module was I wanted, it was, it's the idea of like design. I wanted something that had ability score increases tied to the class they were. I wanted the gnome who had lived out as a barbarian to have a higher strength and not just not just be like, all right, uh, gnomes can now add to the strength. I wanted to give like narrative reason and conversation to it. I wanted to like go into the monk and then with the different ability score increases that were tied to the monk class, ask the questions, what is their fighting style like? Do they actually use weapons? Do they avoid it? Is there a code that they follow? Um, uh, reaching out to like uh, the warlock, seeing if uh, it's is it a thing that they wanted or is it something that was circumstance? Because there's a lot of like narrative questions that I wanted to tie into mechanical values, and it was it was one of the moments where I'm like, all right, I'm just going to jump because when I put it out, it wasn't finished. The first time I put it out, I had four classes that I had worked on, and I'm like, mm -hmm. are people interested in this? And it was it was a it was a pay what you want thing, so like people were like, that's not going to work. And I made I made more than five thousand dollars on it, and that's all I'm going to say at a pay what you want value, while still being able to pay the artist who let me use assets half of that, and it has over ten thousand downloads. For those that haven't downloaded this, haven't checked it out, please go do so. And it definitely. Uh, uh, Gabe and his artist both deserve as much money as you can fork over because this thing is one of the most exciting pieces of design. Talking about the public want for it, oh baby, were people very, very into this. 
I was not prepared or ready, and I was like blown away. <laughs> well, it's a it's a beautiful piece of design, and it came about at a time too. And I actually I'll, I'll jump into one of these questions here as well. That, uh, uh, specifically about continuing this work. This is from Mitchell for Gabe. Thanks, Mitchell. Um, Gabe, I truly appreciate the work you've done around TTRPGs, namely the class modifier module. The racial aspects of D&D and many TTRPGs have always felt a bit limiting, reductive, and awkward in the way they influence the RP. CMM is a great alternative that preserves what's so great about the game while removing some of the more problematic aspects. Do you have any plans to continue this work? I do because I want to extend it to NPCs. I I want to add it so that like if someone has a bandit template for an NPC, if they want to make them stronger or smarter or more intelligent, we can do it in a way that doesn't doesn't matter if they're like an orc or a gnome. It's like they're a bandit. Okay, why are they a bandit? Uh, you know what? They wanted to take out as many like as many enemies as they could. That would make sense. Maybe they're a little bit stronger. They're a bandit because they they really like stealing. All right, let's add an increase to dexterity because I there's there's so much that exists and sometimes when we make new things that are like new characters and creatures it can get overwhelming so I'm like okay how can I how can I help people take what they already have in this world and then maybe adjust it to ways that make their worlds unique it was so cool seeing uh, like the class modifier module come out this this was this past summer i believe right uh or no this was a little while ago at this point this was like yeah this was this was just like uh like august <laughs> <laughs> big year i love it um uh but watching it come out it was so cool because i, I feel like they're it's pushing the game in a cooler direction that makes more sense. Like I remember picking up the 5e um, PHB a couple years ago, because I, I only switched to fight, you know, you, I had to be dragged kicking and screaming out of 3.5. Yeah. And um, uh, and looking at the PHB, I mean, it was like, oh, backgrounds are so cool as yes. a place for a build. Like the fact that they were like, you have proficiencies, both tool proficiencies and languages and stuff like that, based on what you spent your life doing mm -hmm. was so immediately cool to me. And I felt like the class modifier module was absolutely pushing us even farther in that cool direction of being like, yep. of being like, cool, we, if we want to bump your core stats or we want to do whatever else, let's find a way to do that that specifically relates to class. Um, and I definitely, because I, I think that there's that, uh, uh, I just did an interview with an awesome podcast called Three Black Halflings, which is very yep. cool. I love them. The, some of the funniest, coolest people, one of the best D&D discussion podcasts out there. If you haven't checked out Three Black Halflings, you should. Jasper, Jeremy, and Unati, fucking rule. They're the best. Um, uh, but I had a fun conversation that was basically along those lines of, um, you know, it's, what I love about CMM is, D&D's central mechanic is class, right? Because the central mechanic of D&D is adventuring, leveling up, getting new powers and abilities, right? In D&D, your race never levels up, which is why, for example, I, like, I, you know, I've been playing this game for a long time. Whenever I've ever talked to anybody who, and I asked them what type of character they played, I always knew if someone would respond with, oh, I'm playing a half-elf, I would be like, 
you haven't, you maybe played one session, but you haven't really played because if you'd done any serious amount of playing, your primary association with your character would of course be their class, which is like, what are their powers? What is their focus? What's their expertise? What are the skills they're honing over time? Um, You get ability score increases by your class anyways. So like it just comes together. That's an awesome point. 5e is already built around the idea that you're going to get these ASIs as you advance. So why not just build that into your first level? Uh, when, I, there's there's always naysayers and conversations about it. And genuinely, one of my favorite things is people have people continuously try to uh, debate with me like the genetics of it. And my response is, you're arguing with me genetics in a world that canonically has a jar that magically makes mayonnaise. And there's never a response to that because they're like, well, I guess. I'm like, yes, they say mayonnaise and it comes out of a jar. So you're mad that a gnome gets a plus two to strength. <laughs> the the idea that in a in a world with a canon playable race called Janazi, which are the descendants of elementals, meaning that one of my ancestors, I guess, fucked a whirlpool. And now I, what are you talking about? What are the genetics of a thing made out of fire? That's, that is baffling. Um, so uh, uh, point incredibly well taken. Um, uh, and I love that too. And again, I think it's it's very much like uh, one of those things that, that again, CMM as a piece of design, really invites you to explore a broader and more interesting world. Anything mm-hmm. that puts more flexibility and adaptability and choice into player hands is, I think, always going to lead towards people feeling immediately more fun, more agency, more authority over the world and their character, yeah. uh, which is so, so super dope. Um, uh, well, so I'm super glad that you that there are thoughts ruminating to expand that system yeah. because that system is incredibly, incredibly cool. Um, uh, I would love to uh, move us also to another question because I'm sure there's a significant portion of our audience that heard us drop this bomb in your intro and has been just foaming at the mouth to hear more since then. This next question is from Seductive Sea Slug. Uh, uh, Thank you, Seductive Sea Slug. Uh, Hey, Gabe. Uh, uh, <laughs> hey, Gabe, for your goblin dating sim, Hidden yes. Treasures, yes. was there a specific event or moment that just made you go, yeah, let's date some goblins? Uh, so we, we can curse, right? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. All right. It was 100% a late night shit post that I don't know if anyone remembers it. Because I made it, like, last year at, like, one in the morning, and then I went to sleep, and I woke up with, like, a ridiculous amount of notifications and messages, because I'm like, everyone was always dating, like, elves and stuff. Why don't they date goblins? Send. Sleep. And then I woke up, and I'm like, oh, hell, I guess I have to do it now. And it's it's been... So here's... The thing that was interesting is uh, three of the concept artists are practicing Jews. Mm-hmm. which was very important to me because there was a lot of disgusting connotation that people have tied with goblins to the Jewish faith mm-hmm. um, and the Jewish people. And so I was like, all right, there's one really easy way we do this, and then we just make sure we do it right from there. We don't use nasty stereotypes. The, the goblins in the game don't give a damn about gold because the whole society is based on trade. Mm-hmm. They do not have long pointed noses. People people can argue that the only thing that makes them a goblin is the fact that they're green. And to be honest, I'm fine with that because the, the stories are what make it interesting. The 
the oh the stories are so uh varied one of the characters uh when you go through their route it's like fun adventure excitement and then another one of the characters like depending on what you do they might die yeah <laughs> and there's like there's like no gauge of what it's going to be like beforehand but i was like it's, you know what let's just let's just make them short little green goblin creatures and let's just make it weird and fun and <sighs> I, I love that well i think that's that's a a um a beautiful and very conscientious part of design as well is bearing in mind because obviously fantasy is filled as we've discussed and as i think a lot of important ethical design in games has pointed out and addressed is the idea to which there are harmful stereotypes within fantasy storytelling the world over right yep. um uh, so taking steps to avoid that, I think, is uh, uh, incredibly important and good. Um, looking at the idea of this, like, again, goblin dating sim, um, I think it's also fun because obviously, like, there is a big discussion happening when we understand that fantasy storytelling has these problematic tropes where a lot of people do choose to be like, uh, we want to address this by changing the story, by changing the mm -hmm. the the paradigm and how we talk about this creature. You know, like you know, there's a tremendous amount of discourse around orcs, and there are many, many people who their participation in that discourse and changing it is to take orcish characters and show them in a variety of like different stories and characters and like uh, showing them in these things that we wouldn't normally see that if you're going back to a Tolkien model of what an orc is supposed to be. And that's that's the weirdest thing because if, if you look at like, so orcs exist across the world, but if you look at a lot of like uh, representation of orcs in like Japanese anime, for example, they don't look like people, they're pigs. Mm -hmm. Right. There's there's different means of representing them. There's different ideas of what these things are supposed to represent. The mythology and folklore changes from place to place. Exactly. Uh, 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 so I think that like uh, handling that responsibly, and again, telling like different kinds of stories. You know, in Fantasy High, one of our PCs is a goblin, uh, uh, Riz Gukak, who's a detective, and uh, you know, th the the important thing is like him and his whole family are like deeply heroic, powerfully good, yeah. wonderful. Um, do they, but then they sit down to eat cereal and do yep. the fun, the fun goblin thing that we love yeah. that goblins do. Um, looking at your goblin dating sim, uh, uh, what do you as a designer do when you're sitting down? Um, like how much do you have to reorient your brain when you're sitting down to create a very different kind of experience, right? Like romance sometimes happens in D&D, &D, but Lord knows there's not really a mechanic to underline that. So what is it like, what's going on in your head when you sit down to design something and go, I need to craft a set of rules to design a truly different type of experience? Yes, uh, that's where the tabletop, like knowledge and experience comes into play it's but the the way i'm designing it the game will literally roll like a one to a 10 or a one to a 20 and then it'll add a relevant stat and then it'll just check in comparison to like a threshold but mm. um depending on what like class you pick there'll be different options and like ways that the characters will react to you um something that i wanted to do very differently is that like when you play like different dating games or like visual novels or stuff like that, sometimes it still feels very similar. 
and i i created a team that i had the like outline of what the dates and routes were going to be like Mm -hmm. but then i literally like i picked a variety of people and said here's the here's the template the rest is yours to write it how you want it to come so that literally when someone plays through this character's route the characters are going to absolutely speak differently because it was written by someone else Mm -hmm. and if there are roots that they're in the same spot literally we would sit together and then they would write together so that it the the conversations it's not just like you're playing someone's different route and then it's the way they react is different you're going to be able to tell that the the storytelling the writing is different because it's somebody else like if you if you have one gm versus another even if they're running the same adventure it's going to be different and you're going to be able to tell the differences the that that ability for the game to like digest and interpret different like narrative input from different people is so important um if you were going to, and just to talk about this, because I just, again, the idea of a goblin dating sim just fills me with so much joy. Um, uh, what are the differences when you're sitting down to like design something from scratch mm-hmm. versus when you're attempting to mod or hack something else? Like what were you able to do like designing um, hidden treasures from scratch um, uh, versus like what approach would you take, not to put you on the spot, but like- No, it's fine. Like, what approach would you take if you were going to try to design a romance system for, like, an ongoing game of D&D? Let's say that you were, like, DMing a long-running home game, and suddenly your players were just like, hey, we we kind of like our characters. I like being able to cast Fireball and all this stuff, but we would love something to reflect a dating sim more in this world. Like, how do the approaches change between those two things, and what would you kind of do between them if you had to, or you were put in that position? So fun fact, I actually have one that I'm planning to release like early next year that is part of like the games stuff. Yeah. Like uh one of the, it's like one of the characters' guide to dating in 5e is essentially like Oh my uh, yeah. god! I yeah. can't this is a D20 exclusive. We got a yeah. game hicks exclusive on yeah. the channel. Incredible. Yep, I, I'm like very excited about it. Um and and it's like it's like figuring out the scope of what you want to do. That's one of the biggest things because you can have the biggest idea. Uh, you have to make sure that you can follow through. If I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm I because when I when I was starting with like the character designs, I'm like, all right, you know what? I just have these two characters in mind, and then I'm like, you know what? Actually, I think I think I want to do four, and then like I started building out like NPCs, like the non-dateable characters essentially, and I'm like, actually, I really like these four, and we have the time. These four is good. It's variety. It's enough. So then like getting that idea of scope and then planning it out and then putting it together. And then when I see that it's when it's like, I cannot and should not do more than this. I'm good now. I'm not overwhelmed now. Adding more onto it, if I'm not sure, could be bad and terrifying. Uh, So like looking at it from like a tabletop point of view, it's like, okay, the first thing that I listed was, well, it's easier to figure out how player characters can romance each other so what if i just create like a chart of how npcs react to player characters you saved them this threshold goes up by 10 you uh healed them this threshold goes up by five you completed this quest for them this threshold goes up by this much and i even gauged it on a sense of not just romantic like romantic relationships but also friendships because like when you first meet the person, uh, maybe the gauge will go up this much and then it's a friendship. And if they have a shop, uh, if the GM's willing, maybe they'll reduce the prices of things. And 
thinking of like as many mechanical things that I could for the, for the for the same paintbrush idea. I got all of the paint that I thought might be interesting, and then I'm like, okay, these these three are actually too much, but these other four will actually go really well together. That is so fun. I can't believe, I cannot wait to check out the 5e dating rule set. That's so, so, so fun. And I think that, well, I think you touched on an interesting point here because that that balance on the scales uh, of a designer, right, <laughs> is r really fine-tuned and it can be hard, at least for me, to articulate what sets it off one way or the other. Because there's there's two things that I think are true at the same time, right? On the one hand, you look at systems and you go, hey, the more that a game emphasizes a rules system, the more that the game is steering you in the direction of problem solving, or, or even not problem solving, of just engaging with those systems. So a classic thing that people say about Dungeons and Dragons is like, hey, 90% of the rules have to do with combat, armor class, hit points, damage dealing, weaponry, yada, yada, yada. Like, the game obviously has these skills that are for interpersonal interactions, but clearly the bulk of its design is geared towards combat, right? Yep. Which is very true. And I think that's very true that just in general in life that when you have a hammer, things start to look like nails, right? When yes. you have a way of solving a problem, that's what you tend to rely on. However, to be the philosophy major for a second and say that there are other things in other places, one of the things about uh, there are also elements to which less is more. And as a designer, yes. that can be an incredibly important thing where you go, well, you go like, well, yeah, the bulk of design being towards how spells and monsters work is because in real life, you don't have spells or monsters, but you know how to have a conversation IRL. So we don't need to over-design that system. And also there's a, a funny story that I'll think you'd be able to relate to as someone who's been doing game design since for like a long, long time, which is that idea of I, uh, I and three close friends did an overhaul on our LARP camps magic system. Yes, <laughs> right? Awesome. Late nights in our apartment, we were up, we were doing it volunteer. We were like, okay, we're gonna redesign the mage. We're gonna redesign the cleric. We're gonna do all this stuff. New spells, what should they be like? Have these deep, profound philosophies of design. But we were four really big nerds, right? And then we got to the warrior class and we were like, okay, the warrior historically has just been, here's a foam sword, go sword fight. And we all kind of went like, well, that's not very fun. What if the warrior had an ability called camaraderie? Oh, what if they had battle shout? What if they had this and that and that? And we started, and we got about two days into doing that. And then we looked at this pile of stuff and we all stepped back and went, part of the fun of being a warrior in, in these LARP games is that you have a sword and mm -hmm. you don't have to do any resource management. Yeah. You are primal, you are in your body. When you're in when a wizard is in combat in these LARPs, you're thinking of how many bolts you have left and your spells and stuff like that. So much. So much. And when you're a warrior, you get to completely subsume into physical reality. And we realized that that is actually beautiful design and we should leave it alone. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, for you, what do, do you have internal barometers as a designer of what constitutes 
a system that invites people to play a certain way versus what constitutes over-design and mm. maybe putting something that is going to take away from the dynamics of a given way of interacting with the game. Yes. Uh, so one of my biggest things, whenever I make something, I like... If, especially if it's like for D&D, I l always put even a disclaimer, this is an opinion or a personal preference. And it's like, it's even in the class modifier mods, what's in the first page. I'm like, I want to make this very clear. This is the way that I wanted to do it. And part of the reason that I wanted to like work on the relationship system is because I was like, I, one of the players wants to delve into this and I don't have a way that I know to do it that I'm comfortable with, but I'm not uncomfortable with it. I just want to do it in a way that isn't like me on the fly figuring out how this person is going to react. And it's one of the reasons that I love supplements that have like charts or like random generation things. So then it's like something that I can rely on, like an extra tool. And I was like, okay, you know what? I know plenty of other like DMs and GMs who are like, the idea of romance in their campaign isn't something that they're opposed to. They just don't know how to do it comfortably or they don't, they don't know how to rely on it. And it's like, the player character starts flirting with an NPC. And if like, I'm the DM and like, I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to react to this. It's not that I'm doing anything wrong, but it's just that like, I wish I had something that I could use to make my life easier. That is so, the, the idea of like, are these systems helping or hurting? And the idea again of like, these are just tools. We're just making tools for people. Like the idea of, um, like I forgot recently that feats are technically a variant rule in 5e. Like we use feats. So uh, someone was like, oh, do you allow feats in your game? And I was like, there's anybody in the world who doesn't allow feats? Like, yeah, because that was huge in 3.5. Feats was the whole ball game, baby. That was it. It was all, if you weren't using feet, I mean, like, listen, I love 3.5 to death, but 3.5 got so cumbersome at some point that there were just prestige classes that if you didn't take, you were like, what are you doing? How did you not yes. take, you know, abjurant champion or whatever yep. it was? Um, God, prestige classes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that oh, feeling is back. so real. Um, but I love that idea. Um, so for example, I think to, to that idea of like, how can I rely on this, right? And the idea of comfortability of like, I, and I think sometimes people can like, one system that can encourage something in a group of players can actually discourage it in another, which is why I'm a, such a big fan of, of modularity, right? Of like, take these rules and incorporate them as you wish. These are, again, just tools. These are toys for you to incorporate as you wish. Um, uh, one of the things I remember is someone asking, like, uh, um, was talking about inspiration in D&D 5e. And they were like, not bardic inspiration, but truly like a DM giving a point of inspiration for advantage. And I remember someone saying that they were so surprised that Dimension 20, that was such a big, like, narrative role play improv heavy stream right didn't use inspiration they were like why don't you use that that's meant to encourage role playing and i remember saying like we are all trained improvisers yes what inspiration as a concept actually breaks one of the fundamental rules of improv which is that as peers we don't judge each other's moves right um 
And I was like, I know that it might not seem that way on the surface. Inspiration might seem like a wholly good-hearted mechanic, but one of the problems that I would get into as a dungeon master if I started to reward good role-playing yeah. is what happens in the times where I don't? What if someone has a scene where they're, they do a heartfelt thing and for whatever reason, I like don't deem that scene worthy. So I don't give them inspiration then, but then in two scenes later, another PC does something and I go, that's incredible, here's inspiration for that. Yep. So it's funny because I actually, in there was, a, there was an interesting, especially in the summer, I was having a lot of conversations about like, what systems that reward role playing and whether they work for a table of improvisers and performers or not. And a mm. lot of designers I talked to were surprised to hear why I was wary about using inspiration at my table. Uh, Can I make a counterpoint? Yeah, make one, please. Something I would recommend that I've done is if one person does something like you loved that role playing, I would grant inspiration to the entire table. Wow. Because wow, then wow. the other people feel rewarded for letting that person have the moment. Ooh, that is so beautiful. That is uh, immediately feels correct to me. Right, because in a adventuring party, an individual success is a group success. You know, it's funny, Gabe, that's actually, you've hit on um, uh, an incredible part of improv theory, which is the idea that restraint on the back line is a creative choice. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a famous improv set that happened at, at UCB in New York where it was a cage match, cage match set where one person, uh, only one improviser talked the entire time. All of their teammates played silent characters because the person was sort of playing a panicky, anxiety-ridden character who couldn't stop talking. And we realized, you know, the, the, the team realized five minutes into the set, it's gonna be funnier to just keep talking. And what's very funny is I was teaching a class like the next day and all my students yeah. were talking about that set. And they were like, can you believe the brilliance of that person who talked for 30 minutes? And I remember going like, hey, props to that improviser. You guys should be congratulating the other seven people. Yes. Because the, what made that special was mm. their choice not to talk. Like, yes. like people talking is not, uh, is not like uh, unnoteworthy or, or is not, people talk all the time in improv. That's not noteworthy. Being What's quiet is a choice. Being quiet is a choice. So I love, that is an immediate off the cuff fix to the inspiration rules yeah. that makes me like it a whole yeah. lot more. Um, <laughs> Cause you can, awesome. you can even do it at, just, I'd, I'd recommend just do it at the end of the session. Like, mm -hmm. and if, if you want to tell them what it was for, you can, but you can literally just say the role playing today was fantastic. Everyone gets an inspiration for the next session. And then they go into that. Uh, they go into like, okay, you know what? Like it's, it's a sense of satisfaction at the end, even if they might not have done as much as they wanted. They're like, you know what, I have something for next session that I can use to maybe do something that I wanna do. I totally, totally dig that. And I think it makes a lot of sense too with, again, what your what is required for your table, right? Um, and I think that idea of like, of creating incentive systems, creating systems that reward certain types of play, um, because again, we can see like, that's the thing about D&D is like, it has a very serious system for giving XP for defeating monsters. It's like, mm. it's that exists really, really clearly. For role playing, it's like a little bit less so. It becomes a little yeah. bit murkier, right? Um, 
But I love that idea. It's one of those things where, again, I think that the reason a lot of tables get around those murky systems is that for a lot of tables, at least with my friends and people that I play with, the mm -hmm. role playing is such a like reward unto itself. It's like the yep. central thing motivating people to play at all. But I think that what you're talking about from a design perspective is really great because again, it's one of those things that would really encourage people to push and arrive in those places because you're incentivizing yeah. the behavior you want to see. Because um, there's, there's always that one person who's quiet who doesn't feel like they want to jump in, who's nervous, and they might not be the most confident role player. So if 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 they're the person who would never have that moment to get the inspiration, then they're not left behind anymore. Yeah, I think that makes perfect, perfect sense. It, it really is inviting that person in um, uh, to the, the behavior you're trying to model at the table. Um, uh, I love this. Uh, uh, I, I want to make sure that we cover all the awesome topics Let's do it. Uh, uh, that we have today. Uh, this next one comes to us from Luxuriousness. Thank you, Luxuriousness. Fabulous. Uh, fabulous. Uh, Gabe have been loving Into the Motherlands on Twitch. No kidding. Incredible. For everyone watching this, go check out Into the Motherlands. Uh, and would love to hear more about the development process and philosophy behind the game. So yeah, Gabe, take us away. Like, Talk about how you got involved with the project and again, the philosophy and process behind your work on that awesome, awesome stream. It's been fun. Uh, it was, Tanya reached out to me because I've, I've talked with Tanya on a dozen different things. And one of the things that like is my specialty is world building. So I was like, if if you'll let me like delve into that majority, I would love to. And what part of my process has been like, we wanted something that was African inspired and if, if you're looking for fantasy inspiration for a world, if you look into all of the different biomes that are inside of Africa, it will probably blow your mind. You get tundra, swamp, desert, jungle. Like, it's astounding. That's, yes, 100%. So I, literally, I literally just sat and, like, wrote out a bunch of different biomes. I looked at, like, all different types of structure. And one of the other things that was, was something to really consider is that... Um, Weather. We don't we don't delve into weather as much. Like with D and D, for example, we're seeing more weather with Rhyme of the Frost Maiden because it's actively included. But in this world we've built, weather can be so different just by like going like from one state to another. A million percent. A million percent. Um uh in terms of your world building for the stream in particular, that is so damn cool. Um uh, how much has your like in terms of who you're working with there as well? Like, mm -hmm. are you are you kind of like across the spread doing like narrative stuff, world background, and also tackling Cortex Prime? What's that been like going into a kind of like is that a system that you had played in a lot before, or is this like out of the gate first? Hell yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. It was it was just jumping into Cortex, and it was it's very open for the narrative, which like makes it easy to. It makes it easy to build on top of, which is what I really, really like. Um, I've written uh, the Salansi, which were the plant-like people, because I wanted, I wanted a people of like, <sighs> kind of like dryads, but more humanoid in a sense, because I like the idea of human beings don't have to eat food and they can feed off of photosynthesis. Like, ah, just very, it, it, it. It's just all the things that I that I wanted to see. I've, I've worked with the Salansi. Um, I worked on like the different capital areas of the world itself. I worked on some of like the the games and some of the sports inside of it. One of the things that I wanted was I actively said, okay, I want a contest 
that is essentially like a competition of storytellers. Like that's the sport that I want. Oh, that is so damn cool. Yeah. Well, I love what you're bringing up too, because there's a, there's a, there's a horrifying trade-off that all GMs and DMs have to make, which is that you want to do world building and have your, your, the most bang for your buck. Cause obviously yeah. you will, you know, never be able uh, you know, one of the famous things people said about Tolkien, right, was like that dude was able to come up with so many languages because he had like a staff working at his house that did, you know, he didn't have to like cook meals for himself so he could like invent all these languages. Uh, for a lot of, especially for a hobby where most people have like a full time job and are doing session prep in their like free time, I always try to encourage people to like be kind to themselves, yeah. but I do th you know, like, hey, you're not going to be able to fully flesh out. D don't don't beat yourself up for not having like you know uh, the like trade empire, just not having like the currency rate exchanges for X Y Z other yeah. thing. But what I love that you just talked about there for for the world building for Into the Motherlands was weather and sports, which yes. I it's one of those things where I'm just going to call it like I see it right now. A lot of nerds play these games and don't recognize how very important sports are to cultures the world over. Yeah. They're really, really important. Because sport, like sports can be almost anything, but we just have a general assumption of what it is. And and the world building, so for on that on the question, the world building has been so much fun for me because this is the circumstance back to like what I like to do with my design process, leaving it up to the players to decide some of the things as they're playing through this world. It's asking, all right, well, like what's something that you might want to see? Like, like they're like, you know what? I'd actually kind of like want to know what maybe the food is like. All right. I will work on that. I will delve into that for you because I want, I want to be able to give them more of what they're looking for. Yes. But also, I I don't want to work on something that they're not excited about, because I can I will I will absolutely work on the things that I'm excited on. But if I'm also building this world for other people, I'm not just building this world for me. I'm building the world for us to enjoy together. I might love that storytelling sport, but you might just want to know about like what kind of fish are served here. And I can do both. I can absolutely do both. It could be that like literally one of the prizes that they often do in the the hyena based uh, like species town is one of the most delicious fish possible. And we can add that into the narrative. I love that. You're also speaking to such a real thing that I've experienced. I feel like every DM has experienced of, of following your own little passion for a moment. And it's so heartbreaking sometimes if you're like, I, I remember running a session where a bunch of PCs found this secret underworld kind of like magical realm hidden within this very like gritty fantasy noir city. And I had this whole like ancient wizard government that I had developed all this weird way of working. And these PCs, couldn't have cared less. They were like, hate these goddamn wizards. Let's get in, let's <laughs> get out of here. I was like, are you sure you're not interested in the bicameral wizard legislature? And they were like, nuts to you, Brennan. We yeah. don't care. We're getting the yeah. orb and we're bouncing. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that uh, following player interest is a really great way to be able to do that. Um, uh, as someone who loves world building, I think that... Um, Things like weather and sports are really important. I think calendars are really great. The idea of like, do, do like, 
if if you have temperate zones within whatever world you're playing in or 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 not like is there is there a four season cycle is there a two season cycle is there a three season cycle uh right there it's it's so one of the things that i had to really learn about world building is the things that we as just people may think are boring get interesting if they're different Yes. I don't care much about like what the weather is like outside where I live. But when I consider like what the weather is like uh, in Alaska, what the weather is like in England, because it rains so much in England, then it becomes interesting. So consider the things that you think are boring and monotonous to you because you're used to them and then dive into the world building of how it's different. And then it'll be because it's like, OK, you know what? I have mountains and forests all around me. And to some people that blows their mind. But to me, it's it's. It's the normal. It's monotonous. The first time, some uh, growing up in New York, I remember having family come from like either the deep south or out west and yeah. see snow for the first time, and recognize that a thing you've taken for granted your whole life is completely alien and wondrous to somebody. They're like, the whole landscape is covered in ice. Like, what the hell are you talking about? That's that's wild, right? Um, I love that so much, and I do. I also agree with what you're saying in that like. As you've talked about it, as you've brought up sports and weather and like culinary practices, one of my, I think one of the things that I really absorbed from my my pop growing up mm. was he's a dude who, if he's talking to someone who's interested in what they're talking about, he is interested in it. There is no, like truly a, a love of people that I think me and my brothers inherited of yeah. like, of like, oh, there's no boring subjects. Like if you are passionate about what you're talking about, it could be accounting codes. It could be different city zoning. I don't, I will be fascinated if you are yeah. talking about it with passion. Um, uh, off the top of your head, is is there something that like you can think of as being the most far out piece of world building where either you were running a game or you were designing something and you were like, man, didn't think I'd be here talking about like the, uh, you know, like the city council races yes. of like, uh, <laughs> like, yes. uh, incredible. What, what, what are some of the things that you've gone into with world building that have been the most surprising to you? Uh, I wanted to make a circle of like, <sighs> kind of just like people who I don't I don't even know the right way to describe it. I'm just gonna speak because that's easier. I wanted to make a circle of villains who just wanted to cause chaos, but I didn't want them to be like it's like, oh it's just it's just bad guys doing all this bad shit. No, it was like I wanted to make a group of people who were actually like under the control of mimics that actually replaced their eyeballs. So the, the eyeballs themselves were mimics that were feeding telepathic messages to the person and were making them do things. So like even when the party had like killed the person, the mimics were fine and they just crawled out and went to another person. So until the players realized it, they had like they had been fighting the same two mimics like over multiple encounters and had no idea because it just kept putting itself in other people. Oh my god, that is so damn cool it's also by the way a great tip for anyone watching about because first of all that sounds horrifying yes and uh i think one of the only ways you can because again there are systems that create feelings of horror i think better than dnd 5e can like 10 candles or uh you know there's a lot of systems that handle horror but one of the easiest ways to create a feeling of horror in 5e is to have the players defeating 
other things in combat and not have the threat disappear. Boy, will your D&D PCs be horrified if problems don't go away when they bonk them over the head. Um, the thing that made them realize was they had like managed to accidentally scar one of the eyes mm -hmm. and they noticed that they kept seeing, they kept fighting a different person with one scarred eye and the people before them hadn't. And then they're like, we should look into this. Oh man, that is so cool that, that, to just put that clue together and move in that direction. Yeah, I feel like it's, you know, I've, I've brought this up on the podcast before. Lou Wilson, who's one of our core Dimension 20 cast members, runs, uh, 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 Lou, the fucking best, um, yeah. Uh, uh, runs a game that is a wilderness, um, uh, me and a couple other players, that is a uh, mountain, like summit, like almost like Everest-esque scaling Everest game. And the amount of like wilderness survival stuff that's in there, again, anything that you start to become fascinated by and gets developed and gets texture added to it. Like I remember you know, like, like I have a ranger character and Lou yep. started to put time and attention into things like ecosystems into, <sighs> you know, where it's like, so it's, good. you know, we would get, we would get to a place and just, just having the ability for Lou to be like, um, we were worried about wolves, for example, and Lou just gave me this piece of information. And Lou knows that I uh, know a lot of stuff about animal factoids and zoology and stuff. And so I'm going around, I get some number on a survival check and Lou goes, you haven't seen any rabbit or deer scat, the only what, like wildlife stuff you've seen in this area. And had my character go like, we're gonna be fine from wolves. And mm -hmm. be like, why? And it's like, there's nothing they eat is here. Why would they be here? And yep. just simply like, adding mm. a texture. <laughs> mm, that's that's the stuff that I love. It, it's, 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 it's reinforcing that not everything has to be huge. It's highlighting, if you highlight small moments for your players, they're more likely to let you, if you're running the game, enjoy your big moments. Oh, yeah, a million percent. Um, uh, so I so I love that like um, when you're sitting down to craft like a photosynthesizing plant people in a futuristic sci-fi story, um, uh, where do you in your creative process like where do you start and then sort of end up on the scale of the big to the small? Like do you find your joy in the because again on its surface I'm like oh my god a photosynthetic species of plant people in this Afrofuturist sci-fi world so impossibly cool um how quickly do you paint out your broad brushes and then how quickly do you move towards again those small moments of like mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a people that get their nutrients from the sun right uh, uh where does your creativity tend to go to in those moments i just think of the weirdest shit i can first <laughs> Like, because once once you get all of like, all right, here's the weird things that they do. Like everything else is like, okay, I mean, I guess that stuff would be normal. Like mm -hmm. I, one of the what was one of the things? It was like, um, shedding leaves and then like maybe like uh, gifting them to someone, saying they like, I want to be with you when my new leaves grow or something like that. And like at first, I'm like, that's like a weird as hell thing to say. But then I'm like, okay, but if if that's the weird stuff. Where does the normal stuff follow? Yes. Yes. Uh, I love that idea of, again, like, like what are the ways in which these people, the, their experience would be changed by these things that are true? 
Uh, there's a great thing in within, again, like improv philosophy yeah. about how we play comedic premises out called if this unusual thing is true, what else is true? Yep. Um, which feels like sort of the, one of the cores of world design, which is, okay, we take a thing, we we create a fantastical or science fiction or otherworldly truth. Mm -hmm. And then we follow that truth based on what we know about people, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I think that's so beautiful. Um, do you, how do you feel like you, like, like juggling those things? Because like, do you feel that pressure of, we want aliens to feel alien? Like we want hyenas, like these hyena folk to feel markedly different so that you can mm -hmm. have the joy and experience of playing that science fiction concept. Uh, uh, but then do you also feel that thing of like, here's the places that we're going to also bring them back to a very human heart and have you mm -hmm. understand that these are people in addition to being this uh, fictional uh, yeah. alien, right? Um, uh, do you, what's what's your like best rule of thumb for following those dual impulses? Oftentimes when you're building a world, you're going to be building a world that's not the one that we live in. Mm -hmm. So the things that might be fundamentally normal to you don't have to be normal in this world. If it's a different universe, if it's a different uh, world, if it's a underground city that has been unseen by people forever, the rules that we function on as like normal people on earth do not have to be things that tie to them at all. And whenever I take that into note, I literally just, I'm like, all right, every idea I have, they're not all going to be good ideas. Most of them probably will not be good ideas, but this is literally a circumstance where I can put anything I want out and then select like, you know, okay, so, um, I, you know, I want this kind of place, this kind of place, this kind of place, this kind of place, this kind of place. And then I'm like, actually, well, if I think of it, like sometimes a desert and then like a barren tundra can be basically the same. So how can I make them something different that gets both of those parts together? And when it's like coming up with a whole new world and a whole new planet, we have all of like the societal understanding and everything, and we can just take that all away. One of the biggest things, like uh, we had a conversation, how did like they get there? How do we avoid colonization? And one of the easiest things I was like, well, if they come here, we could literally have the natives offer them a place to live and then they live there. Because then it's cohabitation and it's that active choice to work together. And that right there was like, we were asked so many times, well, how are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? I'm like, it's, this is actually a simple answer. They got there and then the people gave them a place to live that was a good place and reasonable. And it's good. Right. They're, they're taking a narrative of like, not colonialism, but being like, no, like welcoming almost, uh, again, like a group of people looking for a home, which is like yes. the idea of welcoming refugees, the idea yep. of welcoming people, you know, like that's a beautiful thing. Um, uh, what I love too, specifically is there is so much, it's that weird thing of like, because for me, the old thing I used to say in improv is like, no matter what fanciful character you're playing, a wizard, a robot, a talking bucket of waffles with googly eyes on it, that's just whatever, is always to give everybody a full dose of heart. That like yes. everybody you play, no matter how absurd, has a full dose of heart and is a person, right? Yep. But what's so funny is I think that there are, that this really is the the old Walt Whitman poem of like, do I contradict myself very well? I contradict myself mm -hmm. because 
back from my LARPing days, playing characters that were in some ways as far from human beings as you could get, sometimes delivered people the most cathartic experiences they had and broadened our feeling of yeah. empathy, broadened our feeling of something can be very different from my cultural understanding of the ways we are supposed to act. Yep. And when I recognize the humanity in someone behaving very differently, that's so powerful. The, the anecdote I had from, I get from LARP camp was, we had um, a game where we had these entities that were known as living spells, which is basically yes. like ancient, you know, magocratic wizard thing. Be, had were so powerful mages in this long lost kind of Atlantean myth that they were able to create these spells that were so powerful that they were permanent and they embodied themselves in individuals. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, uh, the two the two biggest ones, there were a lot of these living spells that were like a death spell, a pain and wounding spells, other sort of things that were in this in this LARP magic system. The good the the sort of like our our heroes that were on the run from this evil empire, they had these two living spells with them, uh, one of whom was named Buckler and was a quest spell, which yeah. basically was like you know a command a command spell a, a you know a gaius yeah. a, a something like that, and the other one was Phoenix who was the royal advisor who was actually a living resurrection spell, and uh, it was so beautiful. And what we told them was uh, they got airbrushed with this amazing LARP makeup. Buckler was pure silver with blue hair, massive shield because the quest every quest spell had to have. Um, uh, in the casting had to have what the quest spell was. In yeah. Buckler's case, it was um, uh, protect this family, right? Yep. Uh, and then the resurrection spell, but this whole idea of giving these people and being like, look, you are fundamentally inhuman. You are a purpose of, made of magic, made manifest. You are airbrushed to look inhuman. Um, and of course, the, the whole tragic thing about them was they were people that had bodies and could do stuff. So Buckler had a big sword and a shield. Phoenix was this royal advisor who had lived for centuries, but there was always the potential for them to cast themselves and yes. thus destroy themselves and give their give their life. Those two people, by the end of that game, were weeping so hard. The, yeah. the degree to which this family was like wrapping around Buckler, who, again, the person playing it was perfectly emotionless, stoic, just this living spell. And... Adam, there was like a moment where the Buckler character had decided like that they were going to cast themselves on this huge monster and be like, mm -hmm. we've come to the time where the thing I can do to protect you the most is to cast myself. And just like we, and so there, there, I think that there is this thing within fantasy storytelling and within science fiction storytelling of like, oh, sometimes you want that to play that thing that is so far from human yes. and in so doing you find the most human story that you could possibly find so the the goblin dating sim one of the things that i decided was i canonically the characters name themselves uh mm -hmm. when they reach a certain age they literally pick their own name that's why one of the characters is named stab it's why um Literally years, like, not almost like years, good lord, it hasn't been that long. Uh, like, months and months ago, I, again, I made a random-ass tweet online. I was like, hey, Matt Mercer, can I reference Tusk Love in my goblin dating sim? I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, uh, in Tusk Love, there's a character, like, the, the, the romance book in Critical Role, there's Oscar, who is the handsome orc that's romantic. 
one of the goblins is named Oscar because Tusk Love is his favorite book and he wants to be a handsome romantic. <laughs> and it's like it's it's so outside of us generally to like uh globally recognize people can name themselves. And yeah. there it's not that it's a bad thing. So I was like everyone in this village in this town has actively named themselves. So then the question is like putting that out there I like that people can go through the game and they're like, well, why is that their name? There's a character whose her name is Lynn and she's she's clever, but she's a little dense. Her name is Lynn because she's a goblin. Like that's literally it. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Uh, yeah, and again, it's like, it's inviting you. It, it's, it's one of those things that we love the idea of, I think within fantasy is the idea of expanding the imagination and in so doing, expanding your sense of empathy out to finding these places that are truly fantastical and then finding the familiar within them, which is yep. so richly rewarding, right? Um, uh, I love it so much. We we are flying through our time right now. I want to make sure we get at least, we've only gone through three questions. Got um, just, I'll, just gunfire questions, go ahead. Um, uh, awesome, awesome. Um, this one comes from Buttery Toast. Thanks, Buttery Toast. Um, uh, when introducing new players to the game, sometimes it feels like those first sessions can be a little slow due to world building, introducing characters, explaining mechanics slash rules. Um, how do you engineer a game to really hook a new player from the get-go so they're excited to come back and play more? Um, yeah. Ask them uh, for input on a place or an NPC or a monster that they want to see. That way they feel like they have agency of what's going to appear in the world and it gives them a want to explore the world. That is a first pitch home run, folks. That's yeah. a great, that is a great piece of advice out of the gate. I think you're exactly right. And and uh to to delve into that, right? Like the and this is, I think, Gabe is like you just echoing the, this thing that we've been hitting on over and over again, which is that idea of like what's the buy-in? What's yeah. the part that gets you to feel agency and the power of storytelling within yourself and within the world, right? Um uh, and I also think too that like a big thing here is input, right? For a lot of DMs, the idea that in addition to doing all this prep work, you're supposed to be able to like mind read your PCs. Yeah. Uh, it I is just ask questions. <laughs> just <laughs> feedback, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I really do think that like, whether you do it formally or informally, like a debriefing after a session is really, really positive, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think if you can in your sessions, plan for either like, again, taking breaks is awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like some of my best feedback recon about my games happens when like, oh, dinner's here. Like, great, let's, you know, like, oh, oh like pizza got here. Great, let's like take a break, get pizza. And now we're just friends shooting the breeze, you know, shooting the breeze talking about what we liked about that session. So. Yep getting that feedback of like, oh man, I couldn't believe that, or that was awesome. Or like, man, I can't believe I rolled that, whatever. Like getting that feedback is so critical and important. Um, and I think too- uh, uh, Brandon, give me questions, give me questions. Okay, we gotta put more. Uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, explaining mechanics rules, uh, entering the game. I think also what the person is talking about here is that like exposition and like laying pipe. Mm -hmm. um, you can slow roll that out, right? That idea of like, that idea of, oh, I gotta like set all this stuff up yes. and lay all this groundwork. It's like, 
you can do that over the first couple sessions. You a can weird like, recommendation that I would give is like tell people in the first couple sessions that they their characters cannot die. Uh, it, if they do stupid things after those few sessions, they make those choices. But if they're like, if you go out and you see this Minotaur, it will not kill you. You can figure out a justification for the reason later, but it's giving them that safety net to explore in a way that they're not going to be immediately feel punished for it. Hell yes. Uh, this next question comes to us from Martin. Um, uh, Martin asks uh, uh, very broadly, uh, uh, awesome, it's an awesome question. Do you have any advice for making fun but balanced homebrew whether it be items, monsters, race, or class features. Um, we, this is something we haven't talked about a lot. Uh, uh, I think more broadly, in addition, uh, Gabe, do you have advice for this? And also, do, what are your thoughts on the idea of balance more broadly? Uh Balance is something that is going to vary depending on the table because different tables will want different levels of difficulty. And not everything when it is released has to be balanced, which is exactly the reason that the Unearthed Arcana exists in the first place. And we see how popular that is. So if you have a, an idea or a concept and you start to flesh it out, if you're too worried about it being too much, start smaller. If you want to have a weapon or a magical item, something that a lot of DMs do is they evolve it over time. Or you can be like, I don't know if I want this effect, this effect, or this effect. You can start with just the one. If that's not enough, add more to it. You can always add more difficulty. You can always add more effects. You can always add more intrigue to it as sessions proceed. If you start very high, if this thing is incredibly difficult and you didn't mean for it to, to be, it can sometimes be really hard to scale it back in a way that might narratively make sense. But if like maybe they defeat the boss too easy, well now it has a second form. Yeah. Adding, adding things on can be improv. And it's it's that idea of like, like with my haunted house, I don't have to know how it's going to work until I'm in the moment and then I can change my mind. I love that. Design is ongoing and is occurring during play, absolutely. Um, and again, I think that, that is absolutely right of the idea of it's easier to add stuff on rather than take it away. If you are giving out a magic item, you're giving out a feat, you're giving out a whatever, I would say probably in the long run, it's gonna feel better if you look at it and go, ah, oh, that item or that feat's a little bit underpowered. It doesn't feel like it's giving the player the satisfaction they need, we're gonna like bump it up a little bit. That's gonna feel way better to a player than having something like, whoa, this is so good. And you're like, I may have made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, although I would say you also are within your rights to do that. I have yes. had certain certain like rules things that I've done. Like I had a playing 3.5, I've had players come up with loopholes that made their characters literally invincible and sent them text messages being like, great news. I've found an awesome way to make the game fun for you again, which is completely nerfing this ability. Yeah. Because because chances are if like if you message them like, hey, I made that more powerful. I meant to, uh, can we drop it down a little bit? Chances are, I feel like nine times out of 10, if you're just open and honest with them, even if it's privacy, they'll be like, oh yeah, no, no problem. Because assumedly the people that you're playing with want you to have fun too. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, I love that. Um, uh, and I would say also last point on this before we go to another question um, is balance is also something that I think Check in with your table about how much it matters to them. We've messed with balance sometimes in ways that were really, really fun. We had characters start at different levels based on how much combat they'd been in before. Yeah. And that's like anathema to some people of like, we all need to be equally powerful. But let me tell you, like, 
the fun of being a low level, which I have been of being a low level character in the crossfire of much more powerful characters and managing to survive of being like, hey, my bar for myself was just to make it through that encounter. <laughs> like, like yep. it was very gratifying. Um, awesome, awesome. Uh, uh, ba -ba -ba. Uh, this next one comes to us from Rachel. Thanks, Rachel. Rachel asks, what is the best way to keep track of character information? Um, and I would expand this out to say, what's the best way to, like, uh, 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 what are good ways of keeping track of information in general, whether in front of or behind the screen? The interesting things that the players care about, uh, they'll probably remember. Uh, mm -hmm. If there are things that specifically relate to the story that you want to like progress, that's the stuff I would keep track of because I don't know the name of the tiny mushroom man they met in the forest that pointed them to the left, but they do because that's one of their favorite characters. Uh, it, keeping mm -hmm. track of like the name of everyone is going to overwhelm you. Yeah, but um, it, like lo lose notes. It could be like, and they met a rock person in something like that, and I might make up the name. But if they care about the rock person, they'll remember the name, and I can bring it back. I totally agree, and I think too, if you are someone who likes to keep notes, remember that uh, a stenographer's shorthand is not a bad idea necessarily. Like, if you are keeping notes, having those just touchstones, because again, like the group will remember the important details. Uh, I also am a big proponent of like electronic resources where possible. Like uh, like paper recording is great. For me, I like have an 11 year long home game. If I didn't have a Google Doc open. Uh, and someone was like, hey, what happened eight years ago, IRL? I would be like, hey, search me. I got no <laughs> no idea. Uh, Command F is your friend. Yes. A hundred percent. Our next question uh, comes to us from Joseph Chow. Thanks, Joseph. Um, uh, I have been DMing almost nonstop over the last two years. Uh, uh, good looking out, uh, doing the Lord's work out there. Uh, how do you keep from writer's block and burnout for D&D specifically? Um, uh, this is a great question. And I think especially even for people that are just playing as a hobby, burnout can be a, a big challenge. And Gabe, as we know, you've done more projects this year than there were months in the year. How do you how do you guard that that? a sweet, wonderful candle of inspiration and creativity inside of yourself? How do you prevent the burnout? So we, we talked about the collaborative storytelling and very often I'll do that. Like after we finish a major quest line, I will literally be like, okay, what is, what is something all of you want to do? And then it doesn't even have to be that like I build up on that, but say I asked, uh, one of the players, like a place that they wanted to be. And they mentioned like a boxing ring and we haven't gone to the boxing ring. I'll literally ask like, okay, like what's, what do you want to happen in this boxing ring? Yeah. And, because then all I have to do is figure out what pieces to put on the board. And then I get to play with them. Cause I don't have to have all the answers cause it's going to be a random, like random chance of how it plays out. But it's, it's not like, okay, well now I have to figure out what this entire town is going to be like, because <sighs> they want to go to this town it's literally asking, like, there's probably pretty much any kind of thing you're looking for here. What do you want to see? I think it's very incumbent on PCs to have an answer to that question when it gets asked, right? Yeah. It is very draining as a GM in any sort of game when you feel like it's the you show, yep. right? When your players are like, perform for us, you know? 
yeah. that can be really, really draining. And I think, again, like there's a beautiful sort of metaphor to what you're talking about of this idea, again, of like a positive feedback loop of a bit of like writing at home by yourself, looking at a blank page is the hard part of writing. Everyone who's has a career in writing knows that the hard part is the diligence of sitting down and going, cool, time to map out this dungeon, time to get this whatever done, time to do this stuff. And there is some of that involved in being a dungeon master for sure. Um, you know, I have the benefit working in Dimension 20 of having like producers and Rick Perry and our battle set designers being like, hey, my man, we're gonna need that stuff pretty soon from you. And yep. I go, <laughs> yep. Deadlines. Um, uh, hell yeah. Um, but I think that there is something to be said for when you get to the table and you realize that something is sparking joy in another player, right? Yep. I have gotten to places in, in my time doing creative work of exhaustion. I don't think I've ever, I've ever fully hit burnout, but I definitely get to places of exhaustion and going woof, right? Yeah. Um, I have never been able to hold on to that fatigue and that cynicism when something I said sparked a gasp or a piece of joy in a player. That moment where someone goes like, oh, an adventure is coming to life before me. Mm -hmm. However, whatever, it's like the, the old the old cynical whatever warrior, like asleep in the stable next to the pigs and the bucket of water hits you and you go, okay, we're back. Someone, someone is, believes in magic. Let's go. Okay, we're back at it. It's uh, as long as you're reasonable about it, you can pretty much like as as long as they are reasonable with you and you are to them, you can probably just yes and them. They're like, you know what? All right, let's let's go to the weapon shop and see what's there. Okay. Um, and you walk in, like, what are some sort of things you're looking and that's that's why like especially when you watch streams or you see people DMing, they ask the party a lot of questions instead of telling you immediately what's there. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, it's such a hugely important thing. And again, it relates back to what you were saying before, which is one of the smartest ways to world build is to keep some elements of your world volcanic and gauge player interest. Because interest is likely to follow interest. And if they have shown you what they are fascinated with in the world, you can allow your design mentality to follow the path of their fascination to ensure that they're engaging with the majority of the content you're creating. Um, I fully, fully agree with that. Um, holy moly, 90 minutes flew by. I can't yeah, even believe it. Um, it really did. It really, really did. Uh, uh, Gabe, thank you so much for being on the show with yes. us today. Uh, uh, everybody, absolutely, I, you are required if you are watching this to A, go check out Into the Motherlands and B, go follow Gabe uh, and follow all of his awesome projects. Uh, Gabe, where can people follow you online? Where, where should their attention go to go check out your awesome work? Uh, you can find me on Twitch and Twitter at Gabe James Games, pretty much anywhere else on the internet as well. I post about all the stuff that I'm doing, especially Twitter. Um, my inbox is open on Twitter, so if you have like more questions or questions we didn't get to, like reach out because I like talking to people. I never, I never want to be that person that's like intimidating. If I don't get to your message, it's probably not because I'm ignoring you. It's probably because like, honestly when I have like too much to do, it's like social media just gives me like anxiety. So I'm like, eh, I'll just come back to it. <laughs> uh, 100%, I am right there with you. Um, uh, gang, uh, uh, huge thanks to Gabe Hicks for being here today and talking with us. Hell yeah, all these awesome games. Uh, so looking forward to it and to all the projects to come. This has been Adventuring Academy and we'll see you guys next time. Ah.